0: The Boys Don't Try Podcast, Episode 5, Expectations.
1: Welcome everybody to the Boys Don't Try Podcast. Uh, I'm here as always with Matt Pinkett and Mark Roberts. Uh, how are you fellas? Had a good week?
2: Yeah, good week mate. I've moved out haven't I? So, um... Oh yeah, how's the new pad? Yeah, it's good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wish I had something exciting to say about it. It will be really exciting. <laughs> I mean, I did get told off. I did get told off on my first day for, for the music being too loud, which um, it were not even that. It were not loud. Were you told off, or were you politely asked to turn it down? Y- yeah, I was politely asked to turn it down. Um, but you know, you know when you're being, you know when you're being told off, don't you? But yeah, I moved in and it's good. Yeah, just um, buying all the stuff for it and that. Yeah, it's nice. Excellent, Mark. Yeah,
0: I've been busy. I've been busy um, shamelessly plugging my new book, which is available for pre-order uh at Amazon. You can't revise for GCSE English. Yes, you can, and Mark Roberts shows you how. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Just thought I'd get that in there <laughs> right
2: now. Mine's on pre-order. I'm waiting for it. It's cool how your name is part of the title, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Like I said, yes, you can, and Mark Roberts shows you how. Yeah. It's like, and you know what? It, what that's, that's a little self self referential. It, it?
0: it wasn't even my idea. It was, the publisher in, insisted that I was kind of foregrounded on it. It was nothing nothing ego related either. But I was like, yeah, okay. If 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 you insist, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll text will You in. keep
1: telling yourself that. Well,
0: there's no al- there's no alphabetical somebody else getting in there first, and then whenever you click on Amazon, it just says Matt Pinkett plus one other, uh, which which is, that, <laughs> that, that is oh yeah,
2: that is awkward, isn't it? Yeah feels like that's been a burning issue for some time. No, 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 my my therapist said to let it go. It's fine, I've let let go. (laughs) I do, the thing is, because I'm the one with the big mouth, and I'm always banging on about it, sometimes people will go like, oh, great book, Matt. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, thanks. (laughs) It was Mark as well. (laughs) So he's like, right, I need to write a book with my name in it. Just me. Mark did do another book, uh collins did a was it collins that did the shakespeare stuff yeah yeah they did um a version of romeo and juliet um in which mark wrote um the introduction and i always tell him um shakespeare's the second best bloke you wrote a book with (laughs) good good how was your weekend james
1: my weekend was good i did it I, i did a bit of a bond marathon I watched I watched about four Bond films. I was I was in a not feeling too too great, so I treated myself and watched watched a load of Bond because I was big into Bond as a kid. Um, he was the sort of ideal man that I wanted to be, but because um, he's known as that, isn't he? He's Sort of the epitome of masculinity. But I was wondering if you two had an opinion on because because Bond's been criticised, hasn't he? Mm. Misogyny and the the sort of type of masculinity he shows. Is Daniel Craig's Bond any better than Connery? In your opinion in terms of that
2: has the society moved on in the 40 50 years between those films being released i absolutely love um daniel craig's bond and i guess if i'm honest part of that is that kind of raw sexuality the toughness the the kind of cold-hearted thing he brings to it um which is my you know which is like the bond of the books um, rightly or wrongly it's the same with you know rap music with misogynist lyrics there's a part of it that I just like um, I'm not saying I like misogyny but despite my beliefs about masculinity and feminism and everything um, that kind of rugged raw hyper masculinity is still something um, that I find Do you
1: aspire to <laughs>
2: I don't aspire to it because I realise how wrong it is but it's something that's always it, it has a pull on me, you know. It's strange, you know, having written the book that we wrote. That's the problem we've got, isn't it? That's the, that's the problem
1: we've got as men. This guy's being held up as, as doing and he is, there's no question that he's cool. And he yeah. dresses are amazing, and he and all the women love him, and we all want to be like that, don't we? Yeah,
2: and it's not just, but it's he represents that, but all the other cartoon characters and heroes that we grew up with, he kind of encapsulates all the best or all the parts of them. You know, would you hit mark?
0: I agree. I, th- I think the moral complexity makes it interesting, and I think one of the reasons why it's more authentic if if you're Talking about masculinity and rediscovering masculinity, if you have looked up to these people as heroes, and, and I think it's impossible as a young kid not to look at James Bond and think, I want, I want to be like that. I want to be popular with the opposite sex. I want to be able to you know, drive fast cars. I want to be able to, to win at gambling and be kind of a, a real risk taker. And I want to be able to beat other people up. And, and, and that's something that for me, I, I thought, yeah, you look at it and, and now you can see the problems with it, but you still in, can't help but enjoy certain elements of it.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a problem with, with, with all our childhood heroes is that ultimately they're still flawed, aren't they? I mean, you've debunked role models a little bit in a couple of the episodes we've talked about. Is, is, there, is that the problem, that actually holding someone up as a role model is a flawed ideal because they themselves are not perfect? I've debunked the teacher as role model. Um, I
0: think that, that lots of kids still do have inspirational role models that they look up to, often within their own family. Um, But you're right, celebrity role models inevitably struggle with that burden. They inevitably um, struggle from the reality of being human and and they they make
2: mistakes and let themselves down. That's what I like, though. So when I, like, growing up, certainly my teens and that, like, and even now, and it's a bit of a problem with me with my own issues that I've got going on in that, but I've romanticised self-destruction, you know? So, like, people like Lord Byron was someone that I absolutely adored as a kid. As a kid, you know, as a as a teenager, um, and I regret to say it, but you know, Pete Doherty, I was in that. You know, he was an idol in terms of. I mean, he was a complete <laughs> head, but, um, but that that self destructive you know, the whole Twenty Seven Club and that. Like for me, somehow that that's become something I've I've always just dest- You know, that whole rock star thing, and I, I ain't ever going to be a rock star. I mean, I can't sing. I'm crap at playing the guitar or anything. Uh, and I'm basically just an, an English teacher that lives in Surrey, but um, you know, like I, I've come to romanticise those people. Yeah, I think my my role models
0: inevitably have, have let me down. And I look back and, and really cringe. I mean, uh, for me, as, as a kid growing up, I was cricket obsessed. So for, for me, that my, my ideal man was Ian Beaufort. You know, just looking at this kind of another swash swashbuckler, popular with the ladies, risk taking, uh, win at all costs kind of guy and then inevitably you see him kind of transform into this kind of aged old ukipper type and the same has happened with Morrissey who again as a teenager a kind of tortured soul I was kind of sat there copying down the lyrics and, and, and the Smiths were a massive part of my life and then you just watch him turn into this terrible horrific caricature it's awful, painful
1: yeah it's, see, see but that's the thing, they're all flawed ultimately my, my childhood hero was Glenn Hoddle do you know what I mean, I was a Spurs fan. Glenn Hoddle was the absolute mustard. Do you know what I mean, that boy could play. And then the whole controversial statement about disabled people and stuff. And suddenly, I, I'm looking at this man thinking, Hang on, who's this guy? Yeah. So is is the problem actually that, that that men are just a bit crap and therefore don't make very good role models at all? Even fictional ones like Bond, because as time goes on, they they're, they're they're no longer fit for purpose, are they? I,
0: my, my feeling is that, that any celebrity really ultimately struggles with the idea of, of being a role model. I think it, it, men and women, you look at people like Britney Spears and, and people like that, eventually it becomes something that, that crashes down on you.
2: As a kid, when you're looking at your male role models all right, and the people you looked up to, what did you desire most? So the defining thing for me for a role model was attractiveness to the opposite sex. I'm embarrassed to say it, but that's what I looked for. you know what I mean so I loved Elvis Presley I loved David Beckham basically if you're a good looking fella I wanted to be you is that why you want to be Mark so much
1: (laughs) 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 sorry Mark what were the the qualities you were looking for bravery
0: rebelliousness you know maverick nature all those cliches
1: yeah I think I was I think I wanted I wanted fame and style I think it had to do with yeah it did have to do with being attracted to the opposite sex Yeah. yeah Money. The trappings of
2: fame, I think. So did we get any... Between the three of us, did we get... (laughs) Between the three of us, did we get any of those things? No. Oh, no. I've got a couple of nice pairs of shoes. That's about it.
1: No. Nowhere nowhere even
2: close. Our expectations were never realised. Smooth. Nice. Nice segue. Love
1: that. We're in. Smooth. We are in. Okay, so um, we are talking about expectations uh, today. The, the premise of the chapter is, if correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but it seems to be that if, if we have high expectations of students, we will raise achievement levels regardless of their starting point. Um, and you sort of talk about this thing called the Pygmalion effect, which we're going to discuss a little bit more in a minute. Before we get to that, can you tell us a bit about the study conducted by uh, Rosenthal and Jacobson? Because I think that's a, a really interesting sort of starting point.
0: Yeah, it's a classic, much-cited study. It took place in in 1968. And um, what they effectively did, the researchers, is they got a primary school, American elementary teacher. And at the start of the year, they said, you've got a group within this class. They are absolutely exceptional. They've taken this test and they've scored off the chart. And what you're going to have to do this year is really push them. You're going to need to really stretch them. And at the end of the year... Um, Sure enough, this this handful of kids had massively outperformed everyone else. Um, But there was a twist. Um, The twist was that there was no such test and that the kids had all come in on a pretty much similar um, basic prior ability. And it just went to show, according to the researchers, that these high expectations from teachers result in this self-fulfilling prophecy where kids will therefore rise to these palpable expectations. And it's something that that has been cited, you know, numerous times, and I think it it, it forms the
2: basis of many studies that come after it. I, I think more than that, I think it it forms the basis of 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 our. It's almost inherent in our pedagogy, isn't it, and 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 how we approach teaching, or certainly in the UK anyway, how we we are taught to approach lessons. You know, like you you have high expectations of kids. Um, whether people do or not that's another thing yes, we should uh, talk about that, <laughs> yeah, that, is, that well yeah. that well that's that's my that's my
1: follow-up question then if if it's that inherent to our pedagogy why do, why do, does it seem like we don't do it often? because
0: when when you look at studies like the myelin Jones study um teachers in that in that study really believe that yes they do have high expectations and and it's really simple. If you go into a room full of teachers and say, uh, you lot, do you have high expectations? No, no, not me. No, no, I think my kids are all use, useless. And, uh, <laughs> no, no, they're destined to fail. It, it's the opposite, isn't it? That, that, that most say, yes, we, we believe in boys. And, uh, and I do think that, that the boys can do just as well. But then in reality, you get this disconnect where in, in the... The, the kind of cut and thrust of the classroom and, and when you are faced with actual human beings you start to revert back to these inner beliefs these these unconscious biases that, that actually you don't think they can do as well as they uh, as you said to begin with
1: so for for those who haven't read the book then mark can you just give us a quick rundown of, of the pygmalion effect then what what talk us through what that is
0: so it's a positive self-fulfilling prophecy whereby the teacher's high expectations are picked up on by the students, and they therefore rise to those expectations.
1: And uh, and then you go on in the chapter to talk about the opposite effect of that, which is the Golem effect, isn't it? And that's presumably the negative self-fulfilling prophecy, so if we think badly about kids, they're not going to do as well. Um, so the genuine question then, bearing in mind particularly what Matt said about uh, this being inherent to our pedagogy, we've always been told to have high expectations – which do we think is more common in our schools, the Pygmalion or the Golem?
0: I think it depends which gender you're talking about and also other groups that you're talking about. If you're coming back to unconscious bias, um, I think that it, it's something that is a really uncomfortable truth that, that, that many teachers, despite professing otherwise, have lower expectations of boys. Uh, and, and the the Myel and Jones study, I know we've talked about that quite a lot, um, they, they say that they believe that boys can do just as well but then they start reverting to these stereotypical generalizations and saying you know boys don't like reading and they don't like writing um, and, and no matter how much it's something that we're told as part of our teacher training you know you've got to have our expectations when we look at some of the the activities that we talked about in the in the engagement myth episode um, you know the, the kind of things that we give to boys to to keep them busy or to to keep them occupied by fun, gimmicky lessons and so so on. Um, those kind of things, I think, are examples of, of lower expectations of boys.
2: And it's important to say, you think, you know, it, You, it's bad if you're a boy. It's even worse if you're a black boy. It's even worse if you're a black boy with a special educational need. It's even worse if you're a black boy with a special educational need from a low-income background, you know? So um, this is serious stuff. Is it just down to unconscious
1: bias? Is, is Why do so many teachers seem to revert to that negative self-fulfilling prophecy or is it more to do with is there an element of for example um a a negative behavior irritates the teacher and then you never get out of that that cycle is that the sort of thing we need to be guarding against it's
0: it's yeah there's both and i think the the unconscious bias comes to a certain extent from the fact that when teachers think about boys they're not always thinking about their academic potential i think their judgment of academic potential is clouded by boys sometimes irritating behavior some boys sometimes irritating behavior because yes as we talked about with peer pressure you do get some boys who have these anti-school attitudes and will, will, will play up and will cause issues uh, and I think that that when teachers are confronted by this kind of behavior they'll often assume this means that boys aren't aren't as able uh, and they get distracted by focusing too much on behaviour. I think when they think of boys, they often think of behaviour and wouldn't life just be a lot more easier if boys were more like girls?
1: There's a, there's a line in, the, in your chapter where you're talking about whether uh, teachers treat boys and girls the same. And you, 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 you say um, boys who were academic flyers were seen as anomalous. Um, that's that's still a very true statement, isn't it? It, it, it? Boys, boys that do well academically are seen as different from the norm. Yeah,
0: yeah, they're, they're seen as unusual, and and it, it's seen as as a case of. I suppose that they get labelled as as, as geeks, down there by, by teachers, that they're seen as 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 not kind of laddie lads, which is which is a phrase that's used in some of the Caroline Jackson research, which which talks about the boys that teachers like are these kind of like cheeky chappy laddy lads, um, as, a, as opposed to the absolute pains, the really annoying ones. I suppose these ones who are the academic high flyers are, are just seen as as an unusual or overlooked or, or maybe kind of geeky nerdy, not real bodies types. Mm. Do do we also gender stereotype certain subjects? I think as, as teachers, it's absolutely inevitable that that happens and we hear teachers making jokes about each other's subjects all the time don't we and and i think that that that's something that, that feeds into this idea of what are stereotypically feminine and masculine subjects i mean you,
2: you must um, have an opinion on that mark i mean of course there are masculine and feminine subjects D D T dt subjects textiles girl subject cooking girl subject um drama girl subject you know pe boy subject yeah, there'll be people listening to this thinking, no, no, but let's be honest. That's that's what that's what's happening in our schools, and that alone. You know, the fact that the moment kids get to select options, um, and we see, it's large. You could largely any. I think any person in a school could um, make a pretty accurate guess as to the gender makeup or take up of any particular subject on gender, and they get they'd be fairly accurate and and that alone if nothing else shows that there's a problem in our schools with with gender and the way teachers see gender um you know what's happening what's happening lower down the school to make girls feel that they can do pe as a gcse option what's happening lower down the school to make girls realize that dt is something for them what's happening lower down the school that's making boys think do you know what i can do textiles um And the answer, I would suggest, is not enough.
0: I think that's a really important point. Say, for example, you're a a school that does something like motor mechanics or or construction or something like that. And by the very nature of the subject, you've probably got quite limited numbers of kids that can take it as an option. And if you say you can only have 20 who take it, is it like a case of we'll, we'll we'll fill those places up with those 20 difficult boys and it'll keep them occupied with a bit of nice hands-on learning and there's a couple of girls that really want to do it but they're nice girls they're not going to cause any problems so let's put them in a in a french class or something else
2: instead but even there mark it's like you know yeah motor mechanics course available at year 10 yeah um what can we what can we fill the spaces with girls actually no how can we create spaces for the girls how can we make girls like when the kids enter in year seven what are we doing to make them realise that when it gets to year ten motor mechanics is an option for them. What are we doing when they start or when they come and visit our school on open evening in year six? What are we doing to show them that textiles is something that boys can do and not be maligned or abused or um, you know mocked for doing it? What are we doing?
1: Is the prop is the problem is the problem that this stuff that, that, that motor mechanics course for those boys, those twenty boys, it works. Is that the problem? that Because it's worked before, we've got these 20 places on this motor mechanics course, we'll put our 20 difficult lads on, they get a qualification, they're out of everybody else's
2: way. It solves big problems for schools, doesn't it? No, it's of course it's a problem. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, you, you, you could say, but why are we saying this? Yeah, why are we saying this about the motor mechanics course? You know, we could be... Why, Firstly, why not put boys into subjects that they really want to do, you know? Um, but also, why not... Why is motor mechanics a a solution to a problem? Well, let's make textiles a solution to a problem. Let's make every subject a solution to a problem. If the problem is kids not being able to do what they want to do, so okay, let's make kids do what they want to do, and that's the answer to the problem. Do you you understand? I absolutely do. Just for the record, I was playing devil's advocate with my question. I completely. I know you were, mate. I know you were. Can I, boys? Can I just say something? I do want to just take um I'll just do ones I'll do want to take a couple of minutes I think it would be remiss of us um when we're talking in an episode about expectations given the events of the last week not to mention what's you know happened with the death of George Floyd um and the black lives matter protests and stuff I think it'd be remiss of us not to mention it um I do think there is a bias in schools. We, we have a whitewashed curriculum. I think I've been a proponent. Um, I, I think I myself have championed white pff, dead, you know, the works of dead white men and certainly I'm going to be doing a lot to try and change that. And I do think that black people, black students um, will find school difficult because their heritage is often policed and you know, even things when we're looking at school policies about haircuts um, if you've got Afro hair, there are you know even the very policies in our school system um, discriminate against black people. And um, in regards to expectations, I, I mentioned earlier that boys are prejudiced against um, black students are as well. And when we're talking about expectations. Um, you know, we, we, us three, have always talked about unconscious bias. I think, uh, I think, unconscious bias, in fact, is actually one of those things that kind of underpins this podcast series. Um, do you know what? I really hope now I'm seeing on Twitter people talking about revamping their curriculums, and um, everybody, it's every white person, well, lots of white people on Edu Twitter are talking about white privilege. I'd love to see that those people that condemned me seven, eight weeks ago um, for suggesting that teachers might possibly be biased against certain groups of children. I really would love to hope that those very same teachers that we talked about in the pilot episode, who were slagging me off and slagging us off because we talked about the fact that teachers might stereotype. Now that you know white privilege and an awareness of it is the zeitgeist, I'd really hope that they're changing their opinion. And I really, um, when, we, when we're talking about expectations, hopefully this is a watershed moment. I was just wondering what you, you both thought of that.
0: I I, I worry that, um, that there are still pockets there who, who, who do not like the, the idea of unconscious bias, who do not like the idea of white privilege. They, they think it doesn't apply to them. They think that, that teachers aren't biased. And I, I had a conversation on Eddie Twitter not long back about setting, uh, and there was a, a few individuals there who 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 are mocking the idea of teachers' unconscious bias and and demanding, um, you know, concrete evidence that this exists. Um, And and we're very much of the opinion that if you get more boys in bottom sets and more black kids in bottom sets, that's because they're there due due to ability, um, even when they've come on on. Similar prior levels of attainment, so I, I worry that yes, I hope some of the people have been changed by this, but I worry that we're going to have same old, same old for some.
2: Do you know what a problem is? I've seen I've seen people like this, and you know, and they talk about the research, but one 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 black person, you know, or one you know one marginalised person in society, um, a gay person, stands up and says, "Actually, this happened to me." Then another person says it, and then another person says it, and then another person. How many anecdotes do we need to hear before anecdotes become research? You know,
1: I agree with you. I think I think it is a a watershed moment, but I also think that we've still got an awful long way to go because there is still an awful lot of people spouting what I think is quite a lot of rubbish about this. Um, what's interesting for me, though, I think, is the way that the the younger generation have grabbed this this issue. Um, I've had emails from students this week. Um, sort of suggesting that actually as a school they and and this is from students from from black and ethnic minority backgrounds as a school we're not doing enough and they're saying actually i've put up with too much of this now sir and what are we going to do about it and and i and i'm i'm I'm, I'm really really excited about the prospect of young people coming to me and saying this is what you now need to do, sir. And actually, I, I, I think we should be embracing that sort of thing because we've got the opportunity to to grasp the net a little bit. Yeah, brilliant.
2: Yeah, absolutely, it is,
1: it's, it's the perfect opportunity.
2: Um, An important segue. An important yes, segue. There. Absolutely.
1: C- let's. Um, uh, can we move our way back to what we were talking about? We were talking about subjects being. Um, gender stereotyped in some way um, and i think we were alluding to this but you you, you state in the book uh, mark when you're talking about becky francis's research you say um could it be the case you ask this rhetorical question could it be the case that the negative stereotyping about gender and subjects is more likely to come from teachers than students you ask it rhetorically in the book but if i asked you now what your opinion is would you say that's the case are students biased towards these subjects or is it actually teachers is it us that's creating this problem
0: it's, it's not just teachers is it because you, you'll get parents who'll say things like i you know i was never any good at maths and, and, and when you see mom say that you might assume okay well dad's dad's okay at maths therefore maths is something that, that boys are better at so it's not just teachers but i think that we are surprisingly Open at times about these kind of things, but just just the fact that the the, the makeup of, of departments. I Matt was talking about going in and have a look at, at, the, at the groupings in terms of kids, going and have a look in, in the faculties and, and see see who the physics teacher is, see who the English teacher is, see who the, the GCSE dance teacher is. Um, so this part of it is is by our very presence, but I think a, a bigger part of it is is the way that we we talk about it. And, and in Becky Francis's study, she talks about certain teachers who who make these comments about boys being better at certain subjects and girls being better at certain things. And what would happen if a, if a GCSE dance teacher, female, has a boy turns up and, uh, and looks a little bit like, oh, okay, I've got I've got boy here, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think that th- th- this kind of thing happens. It's not just language, it's our actions as well. I don't
2: think it is about parents and students and teachers. I think if we're, we're, if we're honest, I think, let's take parents out of it. Teachers have been students as well. And just like the students we teach today, the teachers that are teach teaching today grew up in schools where subjects were gendered and it's just this whole big blanket umbrella over all of us, whether we're teachers, parents or students, that actually DT is a bloke subject, dance is a girl's subject. So of course there are people defying that, but they're still anomalies, I think yeah you know they're still in in a minority
1: and they're anom but they're anomalies because every time we sit down and have have uh option subject conversations with them we're pushing them away from from those choices aren't we we're pushing them into what we think fits their gender and their rough academic ability rather than actually having a conversation about what they might be good at what they want to do but i actually think the point you made about it happening further down i think is key actually it's you've got to get these sort of things nailed when they're younger don't we once you've reached 13 14 you've you've made your mind
2: up about certain subjects haven't you no i I, I see that and yeah it does happen but you can't give up you know so this is the whole thing about gender is i think yeah the damage is done when you're younger so what secondary teachers like let's take secondary teachers what's our role in this then is it just to accept? That by the time the kids reach us at 11, 12 years old, the damage has been done and to give up? No, our agenda is to fight it, you know, and to challenge it. Um, Just as we challenge anything that kids believe at 11, 12 years old. Why do we have to ignore... Their, their beliefs about gender you know and it, it, it's like sorry I'm, I'm going off on one ear um, but it's about the whole nature nurture thing if we you know some people think that boys are naturally more inclined to DT because boys are better with their hands let's ignore the fact by the way that textiles also require a lot of handiwork <laughs> um, but anyway uh, and you know um, or that girls are naturally more inclined to art because girls are creative um, we'll, we'll ignore the, um, the the way the patriarchy is exonerated. Like, all the best artists in, in, in the world are men, um, according to the patriarchy. But anyway, but you know, wh- why just accept that? Like, you can't. Like, why do you go to work if you're just going to accept that the, the kids you get in front of you are the kids that are going to leave you? Your job is to change those kids for the better, you know, and to nourish and improve them. I do enjoy
1: it when I ask a question that gets Matt to go off on one. I, I, <laughs> once, once again, these are not the views of, of James Boys Don't Try podcast host. They are the views of Mr. Devil's Advocate. <laughs> um, can we? It's a, I know it's a favourite subject of ours, and I don't, I don't want to go over old ground, but um, I do think we need to talk about setting in this in in this context. Um, how do we combat students' perception? of the set that they're in because let's be let's be frank to be honest we haven't eradicated setting it's still out there um and the kid goes kids as matt said a couple of episodes ago kids know we're on the when they're on the mole table so how do we take a, a, a group of kids that's in a bottom set and give them higher expectations when they know they're at the bottom of the pile
0: well i think that one of the key things that we get asked about this is is I get teachers come up to me at the end of talks and they'll say, and I read your stuff on set and completely agree, but my school is not going to shift. We're stuck in sets. What i am going to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think the absolute key thing is that you create this kind of safe space where you make it very clear that if, if you, you've you got these kids in the bottom set that, that you don't believe that because they're in the bottom set, that means that they're not going to be capable of achieving high grades. Uh, and it's this is where the, the, the stuff we talked about earlier about expectations this is where you earn your money as a teacher can you motivate that group and it's not just by telling them that you think they can do well you've got to get them to taste success to to then become motivated to to want to move on the, the interesting dilemma and this is where it's funny i've had this a few times where i've, I've taken a bottom set and i know there's certain boys in there who, who are in there for behavior reasons and and i've done some really intensive work with them and and a few a few uh, assessments down the line, they're absolutely flying. And the same to me, um, can I move up a set, sir? Or one of the other teachers will say, no, I think you should move him up to the top set now. He's absolutely flying. And it's this kind of case of, well, you're doing really well. Do I move you? Do I want to move you? Do you want to move? And, and this this becomes interesting. But you, you have to absolutely build in this sense of, I don't think it's f-
2: fair that you're here. I'm gonna Someone's written you off and I'm going to make sure that, to show that you're there wrong. Can I can I interject here as well and just talk about I've got um, uh, a little story about expectations and and setting. So um, I started work four years ago at a school called King's College in Guildford um, as head of English. And when I got there, the English pass mark, um, I think it was I think it was still letters then C and above was. Uh, thirty-four percent. By the time I left three years later, it was seventy-six percent and above, um, above national average. Now that school went from thirty-three to forty-two to fifty-three to seventy-six percent, four and above in in three years, and um, we the the, the school has since abandoned setting, which is good, um, but at the time, um, there were sets. And I went in there, and it was just it was high expectations. So we taught really difficult stuff. Now we're talking about bottom sets. Um, that year we got seventy six percent. A teacher took on uh, this bottom set. Many of the kids who could, couldn't really write, really, if I'm honest, um, but and, and didn't even like English. And then they got this teacher, and he'd never taught English before in his life. The school had been made um offset had come in and told uh, and gave us the bottom ranking requires improvement in all four categories um they were going to shut us down at one point it seemed um, and then within a year and six months that school went from requires improvement to good um, year seven numbers went from 20 one year in september 20 kids in a school that has capacity for 1500 to 110 in in in, in three years, um, and anyway, this 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 teacher took on this bottom set, and because he'd never taught English before, he he was a history teacher. He was a PE teacher as well, um, but he was just so open to this idea. He didn't know any different. So I was just like, "Look, you've got this class. You're going to teach them Aristotelian rhetoric. You're going to teach them Victorian fiction. You're going to do all this," and he did it, and. Um, he was, I think, every single kid in that class, um, bar two, got a four or above. I'm not bragging, but it was him. You know, it was this. It wasn't just him; it was the whole department bought into this idea of let's just teach them really hard shit and and see how they do with it. And it worked. Yeah,
0: you know? I, I, I've absolutely done that. I've, I've had experiences I, I write about it in the chapter about teaching a, a, a top set and then a, a bottom set on different sides of the population and then just doing exactly the same work with them. And yeah, of course, the, the bottom set need, need more scaffolding, they need more support to, to get there. But sure enough, you get certain kids in the bottom set beating kids in the top set before long, and it, it's just, it just goes to show that the, in your average secondary school, even in, in, in comps, there's, there's not that much of a range as, as you would imagine. And, yeah. and if, you get, if you get stuck in and, and really make them believe and, and stretch them with clever stuff, they'll, they'll rise to it.
1: I think the best year I ever had, I remember getting a top set class and they were bright, they were bright. And I said to them at the start of the year, you lot are so good, I'm not really going to teach the stuff I should teach you. I'm going to teach you the A-level curriculum. And that was a lie, it was a complete and total lie. I taught them the same stuff that everybody else was doing, but I, I I chose different texts to make it look like I was doing something different. But actually, I was still teaching them the GCSE curriculum, and they thought they were doing something way beyond them. And every single one of them stepped up. It's the best set of results I've ever had. But then I forgot I did it and haven't done it for the next few years. And it's but it's that sort of. Do you know what I mean? It takes moments like this to to reignite the memory, doesn't it? Um, and that's that's what I love about your your book, guys, and and doing this with you is that I am having. I'm having so many epiphanies of stuff that I used to do. I think, oh, why don't I still do that? Why don't I still do that? And getting the flame back. I think a lot of... It was interesting on Twitter. There was a a, a, a teacher on Twitter today, Matt, who you, you got into an exchange with where you, she talked about having the fire relit. And I do think that's what we need to do with some teachers, isn't it? I think there is a danger that we get a little bit complacent, we get a little bit comfortable. And actually, we've got to remember that every year we've got to churn this stuff out again. And we've got to do it in a way that's new and dynamic and fresh. So that we're inspiring those kids yeah. the best we can. Yeah, totally agree. I got on, I got on my soapbox a little bit there. Um, uh, I think it, it, do, you, do you just want to give us the, the Top Gun and Dangerous Minds bit, Mark? Because I, I don't want to leave this part of the chapter without you having <laughs> the opportunity to, to quote some Top Gun. <laughs> What's the Top Gun and Dangerous Minds reference?
0: So I said earlier, you know, we talk, we're going back to role models, aren't we? You know, you, you look at that, uh, that you know. Manly, tall Tom Cruise. You know, just <laughs> you just look at him. He wants to be him, don't that? This this guy. I, I looked I looked up to Mavericks. This guy's called Maverick. What what could possibly be more kind of Ron Seal than that? But yeah, anyway, he uh, yeah. I, I go into this class, and you know, I, I'm talking earlier about this is when you earn your money as a teacher. No one teaches you this um, as as a trainee that that you sometimes you have to put on these massive performances. Sometimes you you have to go in. And straight away, I walk in, and this class kind of bundle through the door, and they sit down, and and the first thing they say to me is, "What set is this, sir?" And I, I try to bullshit my way out of it. Oh yeah, th- this is a uh, set D, you know. You are kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's all, one of the one of the top sets is set D, and <laughs> yeah, I, I I had to do my little my little kind of dangerous mind speech, um, and and just that like, kind of that like, yes. People who've put you here—they they, always invent. They—they've said that you're not good enough. Yeah, they said they, you can't do they. it. They—the powers they are, that they we, are wrong. Yeah, yeah. They—they they <laughs> are wrong. The that is a great
2: technique. That is a great yeah. technique. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. The man—the man has said that you're you're not good at English. Yeah, and I disagree. That they are some kind of imaginary force holding them back. Um, and. I mean, I suppose what you're really doing is you're saying the previous teachers who who've who've said that they need to go in this set or whoever it is. But so that so that group get this kind of siege mentality, we're all in it together, we've got some common enemy to fight against kind of speech. And then the top set come in and it's kind of like, okay, right, I'm gonna show you as boss because they, they need to know that you're confident and know your stuff. So you get you give them the, the Maverick talk, you know, uh, which I think I can't remember what he's called, it's Viper who says something like, you know, you're here, you're the best of the best. I'll make you better,
1: and then and then you shout. I feel the need for speed and high five them all on the way out. Yes, yes. As you're
0: rubbing yourself in baby oil pre uh, (laughs) pre beach volleyball game
1: (laughs) on the playground over the tennis
2: nets.
1: (laughs) Um. So let's talk solutions, lads. And I I I I think the solution we've thrown out a couple of times on this pod now. Is gender specific CPD teaching our our teachers to to deal with 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 uh, gender issues better? But I th- I think it's about time we address what what does this actually look like? What sorts of things should schools be doing to help their staff with this sort of thing? I
0: mean I I've done this for over the last year with my own school where I, I've, I've sat them down and we've done a series of sessions where we've talked about ideas around expectations we use the questionnaire that's there in chapter five as a, a little springboard to to get them to reflect upon their own potential biases and their own potential prejudices and, and it's not easy it's not comfortable I think actually it's probably easier going in sometimes as, as as we do going into other schools as an external speaker and, and talking about these issues because when
2: you're talking to your own colleagues it can be quite uncomfortable. Uh, Mark when you're when you're talking about when you're going into schools and you're talking about gender and being more gender open and you get the questions from the teachers at the end, which of teachers is it that finds what you have to say most difficult? It's the <laughs> men, isn't it? Of course it is, yeah. About 80%. Why? Is, yeah. it, it,
1: and is that is that simply because we've got the weight of our own masculinity weighing us down and stopping us being open to this sort of thing?
2: I think it was Laura Whitmore, I might have got this wrong, I might have got this completely wrong, that said, you know, men have had, um, what did she say? She said, I heard this on a podcast today, she said, men have, for their whole lives, every day, men get a whole pizza delivered to them. Now, all of a sudden, women are getting half of that pizza. Women are saying, well, I want half of that pizza. And so men are there like, well, hang about where's my whole pizza gone and, 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 so, and, and you know you get you get some young upstart like Mark coming in um, speaking you know the way he does looking the way he does telling people you know you in schools you've, you've got to you've got to start thinking about gender and the way you're approaching it and you you know you have some some geezers that work in these schools that just don't want to hear it they want the whole pizza still it's, it's pulling the rug out of you, isn't
0: it, in, in, in terms of your everything that you thought and held to be true. And, and, and a lot of the time, people just don't really think about this. Uh, and So people are very resistant to, to this kind of talk and this kind of change. Some people are, are really thrilled to hear it. Um, but yeah, I think that if, if you're going to be doing it, In school, you're probably going to need to get some kind of steering group. I know we're pulling into leadership management speak here, but you're going to need to get a group of people who who are going to be passionate about this and are are going to try and chip away at it. Because it's not going to happen overnight. This is a a big ethos thing. And one of the things that we're we're pretty open about in the book is that, yeah, there's some kind of quick wins there, but generally it's going to take you a few years to chip away at the culture of your school. And you can't just do an expectation CPD thing, where you look at the way that teachers think about boys and then expect it to be dealt with. You've got to keep going back and going back and going back and and it's going to drive people mad, but that's that's the only way you're going to get anywhere.
1: Yeah, flog them until they submit. The book, flog
0: flog them the book until they submit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm working on that. (laughs) Shall
1: we... Shall we do some listeners questions fellas? Um, so a couple of interesting ones. Um, let's let's start with this one because actually I think it ties into what we were just talking about a little bit but how do we instill high expectations when the system or staff in your school or college don't champion it too? If you if you're a lone voice, what how how can you
2: do this? What how can you raise expectations?
1: How, yeah, how can we instill high expectations when
2: the system or staff in your school or college don't champion it too? All right, I'm going to have to. This is bigging myself up a little bit, actually. So, um, I think teachers need to take it upon themselves to improve themselves out of their own, off their own back. A good example is this. So, similes, yeah. As an English teacher, a simile, as I always taught it for five years or so, was a simile is comparing one object to another, or or some one person to another using. Um, the words like or as, and that was how I taught similes. Did a lesson. You, I mean, it takes you twenty seconds to say it, isn't it? You, doesn't it? You know, um, and then get kids to write similes and and all the rest of it. Uh, same with metaphor. A metaphor is when you say something is something else. X equals Y. All right. Nervousness is butterflies in your stomach. A hot classroom is an oven. That's a metaphor. Um, and that was how I taught it for years. And then I took it upon myself to develop my own subject knowledge because your PGCE or whatever, your teacher training course ain't telling you about your subject, all right? It's all pedagogy. Um, actually, your university degrees isn't telling you much about the stuff you need to know for the classroom either. Um, so I, I started researching similes and metaphors, and I learned about Homeric similes, Miltonic similes, the ground, tenor and vehicle of a metaphor or a simile. Um, and there'll be English teachers listening to this now that don't know what the ground, tenor or vehicle of a metaphor is. Um, you two are two of them. And <laughs> actually... <laughs> and and that's fine. But that's fine. Um, but now I know that, you know, there are lessons up and down the country uh, where a simile is just comparing something to something else using the words like or as. Whereas in my classroom, because I um, took it upon myself to not spend my free periods putting data into forms or doing endless, endless PowerPoint slides and planning lessons, I actually took it upon myself in my free periods to just read. I now know what those things are. And so... Up and down the country, there'll be teachers um, telling kids that a simile is like or as and and all that. But in my classroom, um, a simile is a Homeric simile. It's learning about Homer. It's learning about um, the Iliad. It's looking at um, Virgil. It's looking at Milton and learning what what a Miltonic simile is. And then comparing, like, oh, isn't it weird that Larkin says in um, Afternoons... um, uh, the leaves fall onto the ground and isn't that weird how that 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 kind of metaphor there um is links to milton and lucifer's um imps and all the rest of it strewn across the ground like leaves and we're making all these and all of a sudden a simile isn't just comparing something to like or as it's it's this rich kind of literary history of um
0: You've got expectations. You've put in the effort there. You've read for yourself. How does that relate to everybody else? If no one else is is doing it, are you you a role model? Are you going to be the person who's going to go
2: around and and say, you know, look at me, this is how I do it? How does that relate to everyone else? I guess what I'm saying, the the onus isn't... I'm not bragging and slagging off other teachers. What I'm saying here is um, I had a pivotal moment in my career where I was once charged with teaching... Uh, Charles Dickens, some coursework on Charles Dickens in which 33% of the marks came down to context and knowing biographical information about Charles Dickens. I was caught in my classroom during a free period reading a book, a biography of Charles Dickens and I was given um, a verbal warning about the fact that I was reading when I should have been planning lessons
1: that's comfortably one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard.
2: That was the day I made the decision to you know it just it lit a fire in me. It didn't it didn't put me off doing that. I just did it more. Um now so now I I think school leaders need to get better at telling their teachers and the people in their department, right? Developing your subject knowledge isn't something you do before school. And by before school, I mean at university. It ain't something you do after school, once you put your kids to bed, gone to the gym, eaten and all that. Because who the hell wants to read about Oxbow Lakes or watch documentaries about Andy Warhol or read Marxist literary criticism at nine o'clock in the bloody evening when Love Island is on? No one wants to do that, <laughs> all right? So actually, school leaders need to say, do you know what? We, our teachers, if they're lucky, do have free periods in the day. And if I walk into their classroom, right, and they're reading a book, or they're watching a TED talk, or they're even just watching on their phone a documentary about something they're teaching, that is okay. So if we want to challenge our kids, we need to be able to, you know, we need the knowledge to challenge them. We need the knowledge to challenge them. And so I think we need to get better at letting teachers do what the hell they want with their own subject knowledge in the school day between the hours of eight and four o'clock. You're, you're sitting on the fence again there, Mark. Yeah, sorry
1: i was I was with <laughs> do you know what Matt? I was with you one hundred percent until you mentioned Love Island and then I kind of lost all respect <laughs>
2: to be fair, do you know what although I do love love island um, I, I've, I've written about the fact that I love love Island. I do not watch it um, as a political statement. I do feel that um, it objectifies uh, men and women and also um, neglects people of color. And I'm not even saying that ironically. I, I genuinely believe that. I, I, it pains me every year when everyone's talking about it because I, I love it, but I just can't watch it.
1: Right, uh, let's move on. Um, what's the best way to tell students your expectations at the start of the year? Um, are you are you guys the sort of people who will waste whole lessons on promises and class contracts and that sort of thing? The,
0: the, word, the word waste there, James, uh, suggested to me that you already have a prior opinion on this, and I share that opinion. Um, I I think that the idea of of signing up these contracts uh, and and laying out a whole list of expectations is an absolute waste of time. Schools have behaviour policies. Um, If they're convoluted enough that the kids don't understand them, you're going to have problems anyway. Generally, I, I have a very simple chat at the start of the lesson on the way in. I channel my inner Tom Cruise and I make it very clear. I say in my classroom, my expectations are all about one word, respect. You will show me respect, which means that you will listen when I'm speaking, you will listen while other people are speaking, and you will show yourself respect by working your hardest, and that is it. Everything else, we will be fine.
2: i I just buy them all sweets and just beg them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Um, the last one. I, I've deliberately chosen this question as the last question because I think it does kind of sum up what we've been trying to get across with, with, with this episode. Um, Should we have the same expectations for all students. And, and the person asking this question added on to their question that they've been told on numerous occasions to lower their expectations for troublesome students.
2: But I think this is going to Jesus. be a fairly swift answer. My, my first advice would be leave the school now. <laughs> what, someone's actually told... What's the question? What was that
1: bit at the end? Uh, they've been told on numerous occasions to lower their expectations for
2: troublesome students. Bloody hell. I mean who in education is telling teachers lower your expectations? What a joke. What a joke. I think there's an element of interpretation going on. I think this question is,
0: is not about academic expectations. I think this question is about behaviour. And if, if you get if you get into behaviour, this is one of the greyest of grey lines in, in education, is that we all like to say that you treat every single kid the same when it comes to behaviour. There's a behaviour policy, there's rules, my expectations, and that's that. But it's not always that simple, is it? And, and I think if you, if you think back to, to certain of, of the classic coaches within sport, um, they know that there's certain individuals have got different psychologies and you have to treat them slightly differently to get a result out of them. Uh, I and totally agree. You do have to shift certain expectations. You know, you're teaching a kid who's got Tourette's, you have to expect that they're gonna swear in your class and that you're not gonna send them out
2: for it. Working in autistic school as I do now, never before is what what you know, what you're saying rung rung so true. Um, so I guess I in the in the past I've been guilty of this kind of zero tolerance approach, same rules for everybody, um, but actually I I've totally gone back on that I think um, and that doesn't and that doesn't mean letting people off or uh, not holding them to account for their behaviors but as you said um, you know using the sports coach analogy um, yeah all players have to be in by curfew uh, and you expect effort on the training ground but when you're dealing with um, violations of the rules, that you do have to take into account the circumstances and personalities and what's going on with, 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 with people. Context
0: is
1: everything, isn't it?
2: Yeah, no, I'm just going to
0: say impact is everything. And, and one of the things that when I'm thinking about behaviour with boys as, as a pastoral leader sometimes is uh, what, what do they not want me to do? And there'll there be certain lads who are quite happy to go down to the isolation room and spend a few hours there. Uh, and I think, okay, that's not working. What, what do they not want me to do? And they don't want to sit outside my office or they, they don't want to be in my company for a few hours. So we do that instead. And I think sometimes you just have to get into the individual psyche. And it's the same in terms of motivating them to succeed academically sometimes. Uh, you might need to take a slightly different route to get there, but you're absolutely right, Mike. It, do, it does not mean lowering your expectations overall. It just means being a bit more adaptable and versatile
1: in the way that you deal with it. That's a great answer. That's a great answer to that question. Uh, Thank you, (laughs) fellas. Right, gentlemen, uh, any further reading you want to send our our listeners to? Any uh, homework?
0: Yeah, actually, I've got a couple of suggestions that are not in the the chapter. And the reason they're not in the chapter is that they're very, very recent um, bits of research.
2: It's not your new book, is it? It's not your new book you can't revise for English. So Yes, this, you this can. Is, Mark Roberts this is, shows you how. Yeah. Roberts that, M, that title feels 2020. quite long, it? It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, the first one, I'm going to ask people to take a look at this one, because this is a bit of a controversial one. We started off with Pygmalion, and there's a study from 2018 by Gentrop and Riosk, I think it's pronounced, uh, a couple of German researchers, And they argue that teacher expectation biases don't directly contribute to gender attainment gaps. And when I first looked at it, yeah, you you spotted this as well, didn't you, Martin? And when I first looked at this, I thought, okay, it's only one study amongst the many, many that do suggest it happens. But I looked at it and thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. But when you dig a bit deeper, there's actually saying it's not a direct thing so so it's not this case that the teachers have lower expectations of boys therefore they they get worse attainment outcomes it's a bit more circuitous than that where where they they say that there's this link between teachers of views of boys motivation and work habits and this is what indirectly impacts on teachers lower expectations of boys and that's why they probably end up with with lower attainment gaps from this kind of indirect routes so i'd, I'd suggest having a look at that one maybe pig is not as, as straightforward as we think maybe, maybe there's a bit more to it and, and other influences that crop in things like peer pressure as well which which we acknowledge in the book i mean we're not saying expectations are the be all and end all for the attainment gap but we're saying that we believe they contribute strongly towards them so that's the first one the second one uh, caught my eye because this, this just came out last week. And it's so it's a 2020 study from Finland by Paranda et al. And this is looking at secondary school teachers' gendered expectations of boys. Uh, and they call them la- lazy boys, uh, lazy and immature boys. And it's like reading um Jones again. Uh, and they, they keep going on about boys being perceived as being indifferent towards school uh, and... One thing that's really interesting from a mental health point of view, what we were talking about last time, is that boys' insecurity and need for support is rarely mentioned by teachers. So it's interesting that when when they're talking about boys being lazy and apathetic and so on, they're not thinking, is there any kind of mental health issue uh, or or other reason that's driving this? And one one line that I really liked in this, it said, researchers noted it was surprising how openly the teachers expressed their genders' perceptions of students. So unlike in the the Mylon Jones study, you've got these, these teachers in Finland being very open about how they believe boys were lazy and immature. And Finland is, is a country that's meant to be a very um, advanced gender equality. So that, that one really piqued my interest. So yeah, feel free to go and have a look at that.
2: That's really interesting stuff, we will do. One more bit of further reading. Um, if you want a bit of something just a little bit easier after what Mark suggested, um, where's Wally? is a great <laughs> <laughs> does that count as reading <laughs> reading really as turning pages I'm not sure it's reading mate you, you, do you know what I swear to God there's been a lesson where I have taught scanning and skimming using where's Wally um, off the advice of some teacher that told me that you know kids kids if kids look for a guy on a page wearing a striped top, That shows them how to look for important words in a text.
1: Perfect. I I don't know if you're I don't know if you're winding me up now. (laughs) I ain't winding you up. Honestly, I swear to God.
2: (laughs) That's a real lesson that someone. That is a real lesson. Yes, I was talking about. You know, if kids kids get a comprehension question, um, and the question is, um, when did the whales um, become extinct in New Zealand? And you're saying to kids, well, obviously you've got to read, re-read the extracts, but don't reread the whole thing again. Look for the word extinct whales, and, and they're scanning. Yeah, I was told, well, if you give kids some Where's Wally tasks at the beginning, it'll get them used to, you know, fl- flitting their eyes over a page. Did you use red and white striped highlighters? <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, honestly, that's, a, that's an actual did you do
1: Did you do that lesson?
2: Did you actually teach yeah, it? I did did it. Yeah, did I did it. Yeah, I did teach it, yeah. Um, the Wally uh, was, yeah, won it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it, yeah. yeah. A, where's
1: Wally? And they all pointed to the there's only cast. one Wally in that room. Ah, <laughs> uh, gents, um, thanks again. It's, uh, I, I really am enjoying this process. Thanks to everybody for listening and for um tweeting all the lovely feedback. Um, it really does make Matt feel good, so keep doing it. Um, (laughs) it makes me and Mark feel good as well let's be honest he's been been working on that one (laughs) (laughs) maybe Um, obviously uh, you can follow these fine gentlemen on Twitter as well as following us uh, at boys don't try pod you can follow Mark at mr. underscore english
2: teach some people just call him mr. English uh, I, and i am positive teacher p-o-s-i-t-i-v-t-e-a-c-h-a because i can spell but i can also be ironic so, uh. <laughs>
1: um and you can follow me at, at the lip boost uh, if you so desire gentlemen thank you very much for your time um and uh thanks everybody for listening we shall see you again next time